My guest today is the head of EMEA for Canva. Here's how his colleagues describe him. Highly astute, intelligent, and a real team player. A man that can wear many hats, who is highly valued by his colleagues and clients alike. Jorge made coming to work every day as enjoyable, valuable, and an incredible learning experience. He's a master of human psychology, business strategy, sales, and management. Jorge is a seasoned Battleforge veteran of processes and salesmanship. His calm energy, ability to adapt to new leadership roles with any organization is amazing. He possesses strong leadership skills, passion for his work, and a desire to consistently do the right thing. Jorge, best tired, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Paul. That's a very, very generous colleagues I, I have. Uh, well, there was a lot more in that vein as well, and I just had to take a few little snippets from it. So uh, I'm sure they're thoroughly well deserved, and I'd like to to talk to you today and learn a little bit more as to um, what's behind some of those wonderful accolades. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit. I I saw that you went to college in in Madrid. Whereabouts did you grow up? I presume in Spain. Yeah, so I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm originally from uh, from Madrid, from Spain, um, okay. from a little town in the outskirts of Madrid. It's a um, it's around fifty thousand population, so not a uh, not you know not not one of the big cities where we're uh, uh, you know not not central Madrid for sure. And uh, I mean, I, re I remember as a kid going down to to the city, and I was just wowed by the lights and the cars. <laughs> so um, it was uh, more of a middle class neighborhood. Um, but as you can tell from my from my uh, American accent, I spent a lot of time in the U.S. So when I was um, when I was seven, my dad uh, my dad was in the military. He was a court martial. So uh, as you can imagine, very strict um, <laughs> upbringing. Uh, I also have six siblings. So so my my parents ran a, a tight ship, and uh, mm. we moved uh, we moved to the U.S. when I was seven, and uh, I was. Uh, my dad was, uh, he, he had a new destination every three years. So, so every three years, uh, lived in Miami for a little bit, then went back to Spain, then went back to, to the U.S., lived in California for a little bit. And as you said, I ended up in uh, doing high school in Madrid and then doing college in, uh, in Madrid. Um, but I had, uh, uh, had a brilliant uh, upbringing with, uh, with, with siblings that I, we're, we're all very close. Um, uh, it's a very traditional Spanish Catholic family. So um, we're all, you know, gathering around the uh, the dinner table and uh, all very, very, very close. And most of my family has gotten into sales, which is uh, which is interesting. None of them have followed my, my parents' path. Yeah, that's interesting because with military, is, your father being in the military is not exactly a, a hotbed <laughs> incubation um, role for sales. Did you inherit any of those structured, disciplined mm -hmm. characteristics that tend to be associated with military people? In uh, in in some ways, yes. I mean, there was always a there was always a level of excellence expected um, in, in in my family. On you know, you, you wake up every morning, you do your bed, you do certain things, and uh, uh, for me, it was never a question of you know whether those things had to be done they just had to be done right so mm. um 
And as I as I got into work, uh, you know, even even as as I got into my my first role in uh, in sales, uh, which we, we can talk about it in a little bit, uh, getting in and doing 50, 60 cold calls was just it, it wasn't it wasn't that hard. It's just something that that you had to do, and you had to have that uh, the discipline. Now the the downside of that was uh, as I got into management, which I I wasn't sure why people were not doing it, and I had to <laughs> I had to really abstract myself and understand why I was doing it and why they weren't. Right? Mm. So, um, what did you and, discover? Sorry, <clears throat> I cut across. You. Yeah. No, no, no. It's a yeah, it's a good question. Um, I discovered that motivation is a little bit different for everybody, right? and um, mm. I discovered that. Uh, Actually, in, in hiring, um, I I generally look for for two things in, in folks, and uh, for, for me, uh, that ego drive uh, was was powered by the discipline that I, I just had uh, growing up. But for a lot of people, that ego drive is, is, is different, right? But uh, I define ego drive as the, the the personal desire and need to make the the sale, you know, not not because of money uh, gained, uh, but because the the salesperson feels that uh, that he or she has to. So for for a sales rep uh, with a very strong ego drive, every sale is a conquest uh, mm. that that takes uh, a hit or or levels up their self perception. Uh, so for me, if if I did not have that discipline going into sales, my probably my self perception would be damaged, and and for some people as as well, and it's it's really hard to to gauge that out in the interview process, uh, but I think uh, that's that's one of the main characteristics that I look for. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. You talk about ego drive, and that if you just take it outside of sales, just people with a strong ego drive. Yeah. Um, you often find it in people who, in terms of their upbringing, that they were in an environment where it's almost, this is going to sound negative and I don't mean it to, mm. is like whatever they did, it wasn't enough. There was always another level. It doesn't mean mm. they weren't praised for what they did, but there yeah. was a push, an expectation, yeah. which I think reflected internally as, in, as a desire to do better. I'm just wondering... Yeah. It, um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know what, Paul? I was I was recently watching the the documentary. Uh, it's, it's a brilliant documentary. Uh, it's just, uh, it's called The Last Dance with Michael Jordan. Right now, uh, Michael Jordan had that huge ego drive, uh, and part of the reason that you start to understand it is that uh, he had an older brother that was always giving him crap, right? And uh, <laughs> and uh, and he always wanted to to be a little bit better and uh, for, for him nothing was uh, was ever enough right and uh, mm. and he I mean he is kind of the metaphor of that person with just the the biggest ego drive that you can manage because he they said he was com competitive even in who arrived the first or even like they would play dice in, uh, between games <laughs> so he was competitive to that level um, mm. in my case uh, in my case I had four uh, four older siblings right so it was uh, there's definitely an element of uh, of competitiveness in uh, in my house. Um, mm. My uh, my parents did praise us whenever we uh, got good grades and when we we had uh, we had achievements. Uh, but there was always a, a, a thing of it's like oh I'm going to do it a little bit better than my than my siblings. <laughs> and I think uh, uh, 
that. Uh, you can see definitely see it in sports. Uh, you can see it in, in sales. Uh, and you can see it in many aspects of, of, uh, of life, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Because even in that, I would imagine there's competition for the praise. Because we all want, we all oh, yeah. want that approval, particularly from parents. And yeah. if you're in a large family and you're quite close together, there has to be. I saw it even with my own kids. I remember one night at the table. I can't remember which, which of my children I was praising, but I could see one of the others act up immediately. <laughs> and it was this kind of diversion of attention. And uh, yeah. yeah, I'm curious as well, because you moved, you said Madrid, Miami, back to Spain again. Yeah. Um, what was that like in terms of you're now settling into a different school, yeah. a different culture, a different system, and then you have to readjust again? Yeah. Uh, so, so Spain. Uh, I mean, at the time that I moved in, uh, so I, I moved in the '90s, and Spain, uh, mm -hmm. you know, had had joined the, the European Union not so long ago. So, uh, Spain went from from a very uh, Catholic dictatorship to to democracy to to later adapting, uh, uh, and and there was an economic boom, uh, and that brought in uh, many different things that that we didn't have in my childhood for sure. Um, and all of a sudden, I moved to Miami, which was, you know, a uh, completely different environment than, uh, than I had ever seen uh, from a diversity standpoint, from a language standpoint, uh, food, weather. I mean, everything you've, uh, for, for me, would have, you know, it was similar to landing on Mars, right? Uh, as, a, as, as a kid growing in that environment, uh, I would say it's, uh, it was very, very, uh, it's very amusing. It was very rewarding. Uh, say almost like a uh, you know someone that discovers a new uh, a, a completely new country. Uh, it was uh, it it was it was amazing. Uh, we we were able to to go to the beach and we were able to do great things. Uh, the one thing that I uh, that I did discover from traveling that much it's my ability to to quickly interact with people that I had never met before. So making friends was never a challenge. Uh, um, and develop a level of empathy as well. Just, uh, of, hey, you get to a new place. Nobody knows you. How can I uh, quickly make myself known here and uh, uh, and and get to know as many people as possible? Uh, so it was very enriching, yeah. and uh, and I absolutely loved my experience. The interesting thing for me is the is the readjustment going back. The, mm. What's because when you go into a new environment, it's all new, and you know, yeah, you're a bit discombobulated, but at the same time, there's something there yeah. to excite you. What was it like going back? So going back, it, it wasn't it wasn't a stark contrast because my 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 parents uh, they, they did something really well, which is they once once I entered the American school system, I uh, <clears throat> there was um one American school in Madrid that was starting out at the time and they they put me in that American school so uh, so the friends that I had were were very diverse and they were from all over the world uh, as well so uh, so it wasn't as as shocking going back um, when I left the second time to the US and then I came back as a teenager uh, to to Spain I almost came back as a tourist in my own country because I uh, I was visiting the uh, the city for the first time and, and learning about different mm -hmm. things that were a little bit shocking. And, um, you know, so, some of those things, I think, growing up uh, in, you know, in, in the U.S., you see that entrepreneurial spirit and you see that everybody is hungry to uh, to, to make it. Uh, while Spain is a little bit more 
like, hey, let's just enjoy life. Let's just, you know, take it easy as much as we can. And uh, um, and that was um, that was a bit of a of a contrast. Uh, but uh, but it, you know, I, I quickly saw that because of my education and what I had experienced, I had a little bit of an advantage over over my peers. And uh, and I quickly got into entrepreneurship. So uh, starting mm-hmm. my 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 own business when when I was seventeen um and just carry that through uh through college uh, that that that's uh, <clears throat> interests me as well as at 17 you you had that that bug i guess for the entre- entrepreneurship yeah. for sales but it didn't you didn't you didn't have that in your parents where where did it come from it's uh it's, it's probably from my experiences in in the u.s um you know, I, I, I kind of got the seed of, of uh, that, that uh, American entrepreneurial background as well, where, you know, the, if, if you believe that you can do something, just, just go, go out and do it. Right. Um, so I, uh, uh, you know, I had a, uh, actually, I, I got into entrepreneurship without knowing I was getting into it. It just kind of crept up on me because I, uh, I had a band and, uh, and we played in a lot of local venues and, uh, one of these uh, one of these venues said, "Hey, you know, how, how many people are you going to bring in? Are are you are you going to wreck the place? Are you not?" Uh, so we decided to uh, to have a, a build an Airbnb for local venues and local musicians, and that uh, that worked out very well. But I, I had the first immediate need, so it's something that I wanted for myself. And then other bands started joining, and then other other venues started joining. And before we know it, I I was hiring people to to actually. You know, run the business and, and, and code the platform for uh, for me. And what I was what I was good at just calling up venues and, and cold calling people to, to join the platform. So uh, I kind of fell into sales and I kind of fell into entrepreneurship mm. as well. Makes sense. And talk to me then how you went from that to let's call it mainstream sales, where you're working in an organization sure. and you have a target and. Yeah. So uh, so when I was uh, I was running this business and uh, eventually I said, hey, you know, I kind of like this, intro, you know, this, this this startup world and I kind of really like sales. So um, at the time, I thought um, it'd be a good idea to go to San Francisco and um, and try out to, as, as you said, work in uh, with uh you know more in 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 an actual tech scene and, and see you know what was what was sales like in the, in the tech world so i uh, i decided to to write to as many startups as uh, as i could and say hey i'm happy to work for you guys for free just pay me on the commission that that i uh, that i'll that i'll earn and uh and i moved to california uh, interesting story here i lived in a i lived in a hacker home uh which was essentially a room with eight other guys who were just uh, trying to build their business, and, uh, and a lot of them have actually built multi-billion-dollar businesses, which which good for them because they, they definitely deserved it. Um, and at that time, I was uh, working for uh, you know for for free for for a few startups until once decided, hey, you're making enough money, uh, you know, with this product, let's hire you and, and bring you full time to to build our sales team. You said that you went and you offered to do it just on a 100% commission basis. Yeah. And that's something that is not uncommon in the States. I've heard that mm. story many times. And yet in Europe, it seems like it's, that's foreign territory. That's just, 
I'm curious to know why that is. Is it is it a lack of belief, or is it just a is it just a cultural thing? I I I, I don't understand why it's so acceptable in one where like you would imagine that if you believed in yourself as a salesperson, you don't need a base salary. Yeah. Just make you know no caps on my commission and let me add it. But if you lack beliefs, then you want the security blanket. Now maybe I'm being harsh. I just don't understand it, but I'd love your insights because you've played both sides. Yeah, it's a it's it's a question that I I probably have to think in a little bit more depth. But there, there is a um, there there is a a cultural aspect as well on uh, on, on European security, right? I think which is um, let me you know let me get the basics sorted, uh, and then everything that that comes on top is 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 an extra. Um, and in the U.S., it's not security doesn't really matter, right? Uh, it's it's more about making it huge, right? So, so if if you have that self conviction and saying I can definitely make this, and my base salary is just a just a little sprinkle on top of what I can make out of commission, then I think uh, that that does make sense. It's it's a hard sell here to tell someone, hey, you're just going to get paid uh, commission. But that would be that that would be my take on it. There, there's probably uh, certain aspects that we're that we're missing here around labor laws, or uh, which are a little bit more lax in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I wonder because I remember doing a program years ago, and there was a few American. I'm going to call them kids, like they were maybe eight, <laughs> seventeen, eighteen, and they were they they came over and sat in on this class I was doing, and they they were doing these presentations, and I was I was amazed by their confidence in standing up in front of a group of people at such a, a young age. Yeah. I, I often wondered, was it just their, their school system that gave them that confidence that you can do anything? And it's, it's more than just a school yeah. system. I think you're right. There's a culture thing. You can do anything. Focus on the opportunity. Go for it. Where we maybe it's in Europe because of our history, we, we do require that security. It's just that, yeah. Yeah. Um, anyhow, that's, it's, it's, yeah, that's that's a fair point. I mean, having grown in, in both uh, school systems, uh, one one does encourage, uh, you know, pu public speaking and uh, encourages, uh, you know, science experiments and to do many, many things. Yeah. Uh, while, you know, the education in Spain, uh, at least is a little bit more just, hey, study, get your exams. And then, you know, what, what every... Uh, student in Spain uh, aspires to is, is a stable government job. Wow. Yeah. Well, in the U.S., yeah. it's not, um, that's, that's not a thing that people uh, yeah. would really aspire to. Yeah. I also think of the States because they can be fired for, for, for any reason at all. Yeah. Um, or, or no reason is really it. Yeah. It's probably that security thing is a non-starter anyway, so maybe it doesn't yeah. come into it. I'm curious, talk to me uh, about your leadership journey in terms of going from sales into your first management role, where now your your target is uh, held in the hands of somebody else, this, this other group of people, and what that was like for you, what you learned about yourself. Yeah. Um, so going from from um, yeah from, from an IC to manager, I mean, there's there's a few things that are uh, they're they're always challenging. One one of them was that that having that empathy for. For your reports and understanding that motivation is different for everybody, right? Um, I've I've been very lucky that I've I've had uh, really good founders and managers who who gave me the liberty to 
to explore and, and figure out different frameworks for for motivation or for um, for working with with my reports. But uh, one of the uh, one of my mentors, uh, his name is uh, Low Tony. He's um, he was a he was an investor in, in the company that I worked with called Solzy. He gave me a really good framework to to understand uh, you know, an, an aspect of, of leadership, which is uh, a lot of times giving direction and support. Right. So. So I, I define direction as filling the knowledge gaps that uh, that an employee might have in order to get from point A to point B, and support is you know giving the emotional push so so somebody feels motivated to to achieve their 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 goals, and the, the worst thing that you can do is not give support to somebody that needs it because that's when they completely plummet emotionally and on such a emotionally tasking role as sales, or or give direction to somebody that does not need it because that's when they feel micromanaged, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think as a leader, uh, the first thing uh, that I did was really understanding which dose of those two buckets does the, the person need. And then establish a framework for, for each of those, right? Um, I was always very keen on, on uh, situational leadership when it came to transfer of knowledge. And, um, and then uh, just build a, a framework for motivation when uh, when I saw that uh, somebody did not have confidence in themselves or or someone was uh, was struggling and feeling valued in the team. How hard is that, or yeah, in terms of the challenge, when you've got a very diverse team in in, in mm -hmm. all its sense, in terms of experience, background, culture, etc. How is it that? Are you doing it really at an individual level, or can you make general assumptions? And yeah, uh, I think uh, I think it's probably harder if you don't have a diverse team because you're you're just you know it, it just becomes a uh, just a replica of yourself, and that that doesn't bring in new ideas, and you're you're not getting anything new, right? So mm. so diversity is at the heart of every team that I've hired, and. Um, and uh, yeah, and thank God, uh, you know, I've, I've always been supported on on that by by the managers that I've had on saying, hey, you know, so sometimes I would actually block hiring and said, you know, we're we're not hiring anymore until we hire for somebody with a diverse background. Um, and um, you know, when once you once you have the diversity, I think it's uh, as as you well pointed out, it's at the individual level as well. So under understanding. The different motivation of, of that person, understanding, um, as we talked about earlier, that that ego drive of that person is uh, is incredibly important. Um, but uh, but I always, I always look at those those two things. Uh, you know, if when when hiring, is this someone uh, that is going to bring something new to the team? Does that person have the level of empathy needed for sales? And what is their ego drive? So what's what's going to get them from from point A to point B when when things are are not going well? Past or present, uh, hmm. who has inspired you a lot? Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm always inspired by by a, a lot of people. Uh, so, I mean, I'm inspired by different things. So, people that I learn from a lot. Um, uh, Tom Castle, you have him on the podcast quite a bit. I'm, I'm quite inspired by his his way of thinking. I think he's uh, he is uh, probably if 
if he were American, he would be a lot more famous. I'd say I'd put it that way. <laughs> and uh, but he's uh, yeah, he's 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 someone that I I, I think he's uh, he's really elevating the sales profession, and I'm really inspired by the uh, by the work that he that he does. And you know, he's he's releasing some uh, some work soon, and I, I can't wait to get my hands on on whatever he releases. Um, but then I'm I'm really inspired by by colleagues that I've worked with uh, in the past. Uh, inspired by uh, I had a a colleague who we brought in as an SDR and completely mm. revolutionized what that meant for us uh, when I was when I was at Facebook. Um, and uh, and I saw him how he elevated his peers, right? Um, and now he is uh, he's the head of business development at a company called Pigment, uh, which uh, it's a it's a French company. They just uh, uh, became a, a unicorn, one of the few in, in France. Um, and I know in part it's uh, because of his guidance and, uh, and what he's been able to achieve. Mm. Um, so, mm. so people like that that have the fire really, yeah. really inspire me. Okay. Uh, share with me, if you can, a, mm. an experience that was a pivotal moment for you that maybe not many people, certainly in, in a work context, might know about you. Yeah, uh, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think a, a pivotal experience for me was um, was actually when I when I went back to to Europe after some time, and uh, sort of, uh, I landed in the UK. So this was uh, this was seven years ago, and. Uh, and I had I was just hired as the head of sales for a company called Olapik for Romia. Uh, it was pivotal in the sense where I I knew how to uh, well I thought I knew how to sell to uh, to Europe and then I realized and uh, I had absolutely no idea and I was uh, I, I committed every single mistake that American companies go when they when they uh, when they go into into Europe. That was that was pivotal uh, in two senses because uh, I realized that where I wanted my career to to be headed was uh, I really wanted to understand EMEA and I wanted to uh, to become the exec to lead the EMEA function for a company uh, one uh, you know at, at, at one stage of my career and it was pivotal because I, uh, I I really had to go back and learn everything again right so. Um, that's when I when I truly realized that was is very humbling because I, I in sales we think you know once you learn a sales methodology you're done right? but you have to continuously study and you have to continuously understand uh, the human psyche and uh, you have to understand what gets people to to buy at different stages and and, and continuously improve uh, your skills right uh, and that's mm -hmm. I think it was it was pivotal. Uh, on those two aspects, I, I realized that EMEA was was home for me and where I really wanted to to establish my career. And second, that I was going to be an eternal student of sales, and uh, that uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, you, you see the path, and that's where you wanted to go. Yeah. I'm interested because you said that you made a number of mistakes that t you said typically that uh, U.S., organizations will make when they mm -hmm. enter Europe. You probably understandably felt you had some insight from an, an, a yeah. European perspective. I'm curious to know what just some of those maybe standout 
um, mistakes, for want of a better yeah. word, were that they, they, you see reoccurring as companies enter Europe? Yeah, I think there's, there's, uh, there's definitely two things that I can put my finger on immediately is that uh, one thing is that companies will generally go into Europe and they, uh, they think of Europe as a sales office, right? And uh, uh, instead of a region. And uh, when you think about it in a region, you understand that, hey, you know, there's, there's 15 plus languages, uh, there's, uh, you know, different currencies, there's different economic realities. Um, and uh, that you really have to view each region as, uh, um, you know, as its own thing. So you can't just say, oh, let's figure out, let's figure out EMEA. It's like, no, 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 let's, let's, let's break down the puzzle, right? France is very particular, Germany is very particular, UK is very particular. And, uh, and for me, when I, when I came in, I said, okay, I'll just hire in London and we'll try to sell everywhere. And, uh, and then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll pick up what we get. That's, that's not how we, how we go about it now. Mm -hmm. So I kind of, we're very, uh, we're very particular about, you know, what countries we're going to go after first and staging the, uh, uh, the acquisition of those countries little by little is that uh, we're, we're very, very, uh, conscious of of the pace of of uh of, of targeting the, uh, the the region and the second mm. one is around is around messaging i think uh um when uh when thinking about uh the, the u.s or or america as well i think latin has this aspect as well um there's it, it's more of a towards sale right i think uh, you are you're selling the the promised land you're selling this you know, this amazing future, uh, which with EMEA, not so much. I think people are, they're, they're happy with the status quo. Uh, and what I tell my, what I tell my colleagues is uh, it has to be a sale where they understand that if, if they don't deploy Canva, their business might not be around in the next 10 years, right? So uh, uh, they have to leave each meeting thinking there is, we, we have to do something. It can be Canva, it can be a competitor, uh, but we have to do something. Uh, and I think it's that um, uh, we're mostly fighting the status quo here, while in in the US, we're thinking about what's the next best, best thing. That's interesting. So if I've understood you, what you're saying is that in the US mindset, it's always it's always a sense of I'm not happy with the status quo, that there's something always better, yeah. bigger, better, bolder out there, where yeah. in Europe, it's the default position is the status quo is okay. That's, That's interesting. Yeah. 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 It's funny because I remember when I worked in Motorola and I remember visiting the pager division in Boynton Beach in Florida back in mid, mid late 90s. And I, I was invited to visit the international office and it was, it was just this room, and they had little European flags in it. That was it. That was, <laughs> that was their international office. But it, it, in, in terms of how deep it runs, it was quite interesting because also, because I spent five years in Motorola, was their um, mobile phone division. They, uh, they really struggled to make headway, particularly after Nokia came out and started to steal yeah. the market. Before that, Motorola were dominant in the analog, but it was the digital phones. And, and they tried, you know, the, the, the setting up the little office somewhere, even in Europe, and it just didn't work until they set up a design center in Italy, realizing it wasn't just 
the office and the relationships, but also even just the aesthetic, yeah. the, the substance of the device, how it was perceived differently in the States, which they tend to be just more kind of very functional, utilitarian. Yeah. Where in this, the Europe, the kind of design mattered, particularly in Italy, yeah. uh, more. And, and when they did that, they, 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 it really paid off handsomely for them. Um, yeah. So it's interesting to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, and and the and the upside here as well, Paul, is that you know once you have a, a client in in, in Europe, um, because the status quo is so strong, if you become the status quo, you, uh, churn is is highly reduced as well, right? So, so while while churn in the U.S. Uh, can be you know as as good as your product is next to the the next best thing, in Europe, you know mm. you have a client for for a very long time. Mm. You also have me thinking now in terms of sales models and processes that we yeah. often adapt from the states. That you're yeah. saying is they, they really do have to be adapted. You just, just can't take one and just plonk it and expect it to, to operate the same. Yeah, this, uh, you know, the, the, the idea of, of vision transfer uh, has to be adapted uh, a lot of times for. for uh, mm. For Europe, uh, we're a lot more skeptical, um, and uh, and the moment that you show this huge picture, picture that almost seems unrealizable, people will will call you out, right? <laughs> and uh, uh, I think uh, you know Europe is uh, is ultimately the, the, uh, what I, what I tell people is uh, is the U.S. after having been through 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 quite a bit, right? So we we have that natural skepticism and saying, yeah, we're we're willing to innovate, but but let's you know, let, let's get down to the ground and see what's, uh, you know, what is this really going to produce for our business? Mm. In what you're doing currently, yeah. Jorge, what's motivating you most? Yeah. Um, so uh, Canva is a, is a very unique product. And uh, Canva is, uh, is, is a product that, uh, you know, design has a very strong I mean, design is a stronghold, right? And everybody that thinks about design thinks mm -hmm. about Canva. Uh, but what uh, what really motivates me about the product is um, is being able to to look at the design space and see how design can transfer into productivity. So I've always worked in products that that really help people communicate in in very different and in um, honest and direct ways. And uh, I think if you empower people to design, you are bridging that gap between. Um, mm -hmm between design and communication so so that on the product side on, on the on the go-to market function as well um uh it's it's really a product-led growth motion and um i always think about any new role and any new uh challenges uh, you know you know how to do 80 percent of it and there's 20 percent of it which you have no idea about right um and i i, I feel the the 80 percent that i uh, that I know how to do, but you know, still continuously learning and, and polishing, and uh, mm. I think that will never end. Um, but that eighty yeah. uh, percent is you know, part, part of what we talked about before: hiring, training, mm. coaching. Uh, mm. That twenty percent is how do you bring a a product that is associated to to the consumer space to the B two B space. And uh, and how do you lead a product-led growth motion uh, in uh, in in a region who who is not used to buying in this way? Mm. 
Tell me if I'm wrong about Canva. I'm just curious because to mm. me, where I where I see it is, is it's almost like democratizing design. Um, where where I've I've seen it is I would be reasonably good at Photoshop. I've used it for a photographer yep. for years, and be, and so if that's my kind of go to if I wanted to yeah. make a PNG file, remove a background, whatever it is. And I've noticed at times where I'll send an image to my son, and within minutes he'll be back, and I'm going to go because he's no Photoshop. So he goes, "How did you do that, <laughs> Canva?" <laughs> and you know, and he's able to do it, and it looks really good. And there's no in-house designer. Is am, am I in the right spot with Canva? Is that that's, or is there more that's to exactly that? that's that's exactly it. it. It makes design very very easy, um, and uh, because because it does have that uh, incredibly user friendly uh, interface. Uh, we're already thinking about what next. What what can we make more user friendly as well? So. Uh, we're, we entered uh, the UK through an acquisition uh, company called Flourish, um, and they uh, they mostly uh, work with uh, how to make data a little bit more visual. Uh, mm. So, you know, when, when communicating in a board meeting or the finance team wants to communicate, how can they make how can they tell their story a little bit better? And that's that's very exciting, right? Because we all communicate in stories, and I think uh, we mm. we have to help people do that in a little bit of a better way. If you weren't doing what you're doing now, you were, let's say, you were wanted to retire in the morning. Uh, what would you do with yourself? Um, so pr professionally, if uh, if if I weren't doing no, sales, sorry, probably... I should say, take, oh. yeah, you're you're retired. There's no more corporate. Oh, you. retired. <laughs> how would you how would you spend your your time? Uh, yeah, so uh, I actually I have a few initiatives which I'm, I'm uh, helping uh, Spanish entrepreneurs. So uh, you know that's my, my true fashion, passion is uh, uh, is is around sales. It's around entrepreneurship. So uh, in, in the back of my mind, there's always a question on how can I elevate the the sales profession and how can I uh, you know light a fire in, in entrepreneurship in Spain mm. and. Um, Spain has, I mean, it's really transformed over the years. And, uh, you know, now for the, for the first time we have, I believe it's, uh, we're up to 15 unicorns and, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a market that is, uh, that is growing. Um, however, that hasn't affected the sales profession as much. Nobody in college is thinking about the sales profession. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I take it into myself on how can I uh, teach people about uh, about the beauty of sales, about the craft, um, and how can I get people that are doing the sales profession to be proud and, and, and lift up their chest and say, you know what, I, I do work in sales and I really like it. Um, so I would be, I would be doing something around those lines. Mm. I want to talk about that just in a moment because mm. I'd heard something about the Spanish market some years ago in terms of, and I think you've just confirmed it was that in terms of their spending. Mm organizational corporate spending on sales training in terms of in European context even was quite low but certainly relative to the states it was yeah. very low um, but it, I think that's what you're 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 really saying as well as in terms of how it's seen as a profession um, in terms of your own understanding of sales is it more about what happens between you and a prospect or about what happens between your own ears um, when, I mean, there, there definitely has to be, uh, there's, there's empathy in, in sales. And, mm -hmm. um, I think, um, 
I mean, in this context, uh, the central ability to feel other people uh, and to feel their, their problems uh, is going to help a, a buyer who senses that, that empathy uh, to really give more information and feedback and, and really open up, uh, right? Uh, so there, there is that aspect, um, but there's, there's also the, the aspect of, uh, also buying a product is complex, right? Um, mm. so how can I help that person who I've, I've gained their trust, they've opened up their, you know, their, their agenda, they've opened up their, their, their challenges. How can I help them buy as well? Because I, I've been on the selling side, but I've also been on the buying side. Uh, so uh, on, on in Facebook, we uh, we we bought uh, a few uh, sales products. We bought Outreach. We bought Clary. And buying a product at these large organizations is probably as hard as it is to to sell into them. And having the right person guide you through the process is is incredibly useful. Interesting. A reason I asked the question as well about what goes on in, in the, the inner game, the mental game, yeah. is that I've often found that where people struggle the most is getting outside their own comfort zone. And yeah. also the kind of the stories they tell themselves and what they believe to be true. You know, you have to give a discount to close a piece of business. Oh, yeah. And that's just, you know, it's a belief and which manifests itself in behavior. But unless you understand the, the inner game, it's harder to influence the, the, yeah. the outer game, what you see from the outside. And in that context, I wondered where the real challenge is, is it, is it often felt, you know, selling, because you said you, you, you want to spend more time on this, selling, training, coaching, essentially, even if, even if you're not charging, if you're just doing it as a, <laughs> as, as a pro bono, there's a there's there's an ego thing involved. Like you you know if, yeah. if I if I'm selling this to you, there's no ego involvement in your behalf. It's a tool. If it has value, it's easy to sell it to you. But when you're talking about coaching training, it's like it's often per perceived. I think is what's wrong with me. Uh, yeah. It's it's about changing something in you or how you see the world and how you feel about it. And therefore, often there can be a, a protection. You know, I don't need it. I'm fine. I'm okay. Thanks. Yeah. It's almost like a denial. And I'm just yeah. wondering, have you experienced that? And if so, how you how you adapt to it? Yeah, I mean, I I, I experience that every day with with my reports, right? I think uh, ultimately um, there is uh, when, when thinking about motivation, confidence in, in oneself is incredibly important. And, uh, you know, so some people, they might engineer and blame it on, on external factors. And uh, even though those ex mm. external factors might be true, I think uh, you always have to dig in a little bit deeper and say, hey, you know, let's explore those explanations. Uh, and let's explore, uh, you know, what your role is in leading to those outcomes. Right? So, uh, mm. and uh, I always try to get more, more messages uh, around the behavior that I'm seeing and what I want to see and, and, uh, and I try to make it as, as authentic as, as possible. But but I think uh, anybody who who has that that ego drive uh, will it's it also comes in hand in hand with the humility of saying I don't know everything and I'm I'm happy to learn uh, everything. Right. Uh, again, not only in sales but uh, in, yeah. the, in this Michael Jordan documentary, yeah. he was the one who had a, a trainer who would help him sh you know shoot every yeah. single day and, and would give him tips. Right. 
Yeah. I think our environment is important as well, that if, if, if I'm standing yep. in a group of 10 people and they're all going, I'm fine, I'm fine, it's harder for me to step forward and say, actually, I need help, I'm not great at this. But if everybody is, I need help, I need help, then it makes it safe and yep. you almost like you have permission to be vulnerable in those situations. Um, yep. Which is why I think sales as a profession in the States is, is way ahead because there is that sense of, I want to get there and I know what I have right now, I, I need the skills. Where in Europe, traditionally, I think we've been more guarded, more less willing to be vulnerable about our own shortcomings when it comes to, you know, in, in Ireland we always talked about having the gift of the gab. We can talk ourselves uh, to anybody, but that's not selling. You know, it's, we think it is, but it isn't. Yeah. Um, it's quite interesting to see that. But um, talk to me about when you're at your happiest. Yeah, uh, I mean, w without a doubt, seeing, seeing people grow into their roles. Uh, you know, we... Uh, so we, we we talked about giving direction and giving support, uh, but then there's there's another aspect to to the leadership position, which is how can I help this person grow within their role? And uh, and as I mentioned, people that I that I admire are are people that I've seen really step up and grow in their roles, um, and uh, and that's that's when I'm absolutely at my happiest seeing people uh, excel or people turn around a, a poor situation and. Uh, uh, and and go beyond what they thought possible. Um, I mean, one one thing that I always tell my my reports is, you know, re regardless of anything that happens, uh, I want your 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 value as as a salesperson as an employee to go up uh, in the time that you are working with me. And uh, yeah. whether that's uh, uh, with with training that I can provide, training that I can provide for you, or within the company, or training that I can provide outside the company, yeah. um, and uh, you know, giving uh, giving that guidance and seeing people grow is just I, I think that's that's the best feeling of, uh, anybody in leadership can uh, can aspire to. Outside of work, when are you at your most content? Uh, so, so I'm a dad, uh, and uh, I think um, uh, actually the, the the two have a lot in common, right? Because because uh, as a dad, you see your your children grow, and you see them evolve, and you see them build their personalities, uh, and that is uh, that is that is one of the, the biggest fires that I that I have uh, internally to do what I do. Right? I think my 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 children, um, and. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean that that beats everything by by a mile. I could. Mm. Yeah, I I've often found, and it's not an uncommon thing, where as a parent, you'll find yourself saying things like "I sound" or "I I, I look like my father," as a male, <laughs> right? Uh, more and more, every day. Yeah. Have you ever found that? And if so, in what what situations? Yeah, um, my. Uh, my, my dad had had a few things uh, that were uh, that that I would that would I would consider virtuous, uh, and uh, which he, he he would choose his words quite quite wisely. He was he was quite laconic, and uh, a lot of times my, my my mom was a complete opposite. She was um, she was very she was very chatty, very extroverted. My dad was uh, he was he was a bit of an introvert. He was really really intelligent and he would choose his words very wisely uh, and he would always uh, he'd always say I, I rather you know choose 
three wise words instead of saying a million silly ones, right? <laughs> and, uh, um, so a lot of the times, I am uh, I am the quiet person in the room, and I will I will think about what I'm going to say, and I will I will really really choose my words, uh, and then then I will say them. And and when I when I when I do that, I I think back and it's like ah, oh, geez, I'm I'm becoming my dad. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh. but yeah, there is there is that element, uh, and also the uh, uh, the discipline and that fire to excel as well. I think uh, I I do get from my uh, I think from from both my parents. So they make their bed every day. The kids, or your, they your do. Uh, my my kids make their bed every day, <laughs> as yeah. as do Good I. For you. Good. <laughs> yeah. What's your greatest wish for the future? I. Yeah, I think we're we're living in a, a bit of un, uncertain times. Um, I'm, I'm I'm positive for the future. I think uh, humanity has been able to to resolve uh, a lot of the challenges that, that we that we have, and uh, I think um, ultimately, as uh, as a dad and as uh, someone that I see new generations growing up, is that the, the future is. Uh, uh, is is better than uh, than than the ones that uh, you know that that we've we've lived in. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I think uh, from from a personal standpoint, I think uh, <clears throat> little by little we're, we're we're getting there and we're finding solutions to to hard problems and uh, um, and uh, and hopefully you know uh, both both you and I, Paul, we can be part of that solution, right? So I think. Um, uh, mm -hmm part of what motivated me to work for Canva as well as their, their two-step program, which is, you know, make as, as valuable a company as possible and give as much back to, to the world. So part of, uh, part of the work that my team does is, uh, you know, two or three days a month, we will go out and do charity work and, uh, and, and put our, our little grain of, uh, of salt into, uh, uh, into nice. some of the challenges the world is facing. I like that. Um, Let's just, just, I'm conscious of time, uh, a couple of questions for you before I let you go. Sure. Let's play Desert, desert Island. You have one <laughs> okay. object you can take with you. It can't, you know, you're, it can't be family or friends or, or a pet um, or a phone or a laptop. You have to leave those behind. You can take one <laughs> treasure. The kind of thing that you would run back into a burning building to rescue, it means yeah. that much to you. What would that be and why? Uh, so, so as you know, I'm a, I'm a musician. Uh, I, I'm a guitarist. Uh, I have a, a 1980s Les Paul, which I uh, I saved up as a kid uh, for summers and summers and summers to to finally uh, buy it, and that goes with me wherever I go. So if uh, if I can choose one object, which I would never get bored in a desert island, that would, that would be it. Nice, nice. And I'm, I'm curious. I have to ask you now. Uh, yeah. Favorite music. Uh, I would say blues. I think blues gives blues. you, yeah, get, blues. Blues does give you that that opportunity to improvise, to to really speak and, and build your your musical voice. So, so blues is uh, is where I, I I find myself most comfortable. I'm, I wanted to ask you because I, I had this experience a couple of times, and it, it's 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 up there in terms of treasured memories. Yeah. Have you ever been to a real kind of a blues festival, blues location where blues is kind of part of the DNA and the fabric of that place. It could be a town or a bar or something like that. Yeah, there's there's a few places in, uh, I mean, def definitely in the U.S. where it's just very, mm. they, they have a little, uh, 
there's there's a soul to them uh new orleans is one of them right i think you, you go in there and you just see the the level of musicians uh, and, and they're not famous and they're not uh and they'll 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 never be but i mean they they have music in their blood and you, and you can really you can really feel it um there's a there's a few locations uh where uh and, and outside outside of the u.s but in, in madrid or in london where where you can go you can rock up with your guitar and, and uh you can go up on stage and, and all of a sudden just really uh really get connected with with everybody on stage and, and just play music uh, and those moments are, are very magical right because all of a sudden everybody's in the brain in the same brain wave and everybody yeah, yeah. In the, independent of their origin are, are playing a, yeah. a, a similar tune that's the one thing that fascinated me with blues i remember being going in austin in texas in sixth street there was a a, a number of blues you know places there was one particular bar we were in and it was right <laughs> wasn't there was no draft beer it was all bottled beer I, I won't because i don't want to put people off their breakfast or lunch or whatever they might be listening to but the toilets were just, just and you had to go outside <laughs> it was just awful but the music was magical and what yeah. i what i what i took away from it was and it's, you, you reminded me saying it is that the musicians weren't so much performing for others. Yeah. It was almost they were just performing together and others then got to participate in that. It just felt different to say going to a regular concert. Yeah. It, there seemed to be more of a connection between the individuals, the audience and the music than there is when you go to watch something in a regular stadium. Um, maybe it's Absolutely. the venue as well helps, but uh, certainly it's, it's magical. Um, final question. When your time on this planet is done, how would you like to be remembered? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think, I think I'd, I'd, I'd like to be remembered as someone um, that <clears throat> that elevated the tide. I, I think uh, one of the one of the advice I always give people is, uh, you know, whatever happens in your professional career how you want to be viewed as a company you want to be viewed as the person that people enjoy working with and that they know they're going to get your best work um and and i apply that to my life and i apply that to to my work so uh, if um, any of my friends and ever have any challenges my, my family members my colleagues they know that at least they're, they're going to get a hug they're going to get a smile and they're they're going to get my my best and most heartfelt uh, 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 work to 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 help them out, and uh, I think uh, I think that would be ho hopefully a good memory to leave behind. Jorge Bester, thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Paul.